0: Hello listeners, welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim, and I'm the host of this program. Do you know a hymn called God Will Take Care of You? The hymn God Will Take Care of You was created by Walter Stillman Martin and his wife, Sevilla Durfee Martin. Sevilla wrote the hymn and Walter composed the music. Walter Martin was born in 1862 in Rowley, Massachusetts. After graduating from Harvard University, he became a Baptist minister. His wife born Sevilla Holden in 1868 in Nova Scotia, Canada, graduated from a college of education and worked as a school teacher. They also shared an extraordinary musical talent. Sevilla, while working as a school teacher, learned about music and wrote hymn poems for many years. In fact, so many that her hymns were later published. Moreover, Walter arranged the music for these hymns and many of these hymns we sing today, some of these hymns include Everything Has Changed, Victory, and Somebody Loves You. The hymn we'd like to introduce you today, God Will Take Care of You, has an interesting story as to how it was written. We'll come back after our first song to share more about the story. The year was nineteen o four when Walter and Sevilla Martin, who were living in New Jersey, were planning to visit a Bible school in New York with their nine year old son, although Sevilla was sick, they were preparing to compile a book of hymns so they could not cancel their visit. The Martins decided to rent a house near the school during their visit to New York and started working on the hymnal compilation as time passed by, however. Sevilla's sickness grew worse, and she became confined to a sickbed. Pastor Walter became deeply troubled at this. He thought that he should stay by his wife's side to take care of her, even if he had to stop compiling the hymns. Walter was asked to preach at a church during their Sunday night service during this time. But because of his wife's sickness, he decides to cancel his trip. However, as he picked up the phone to cancel his preaching schedule, his son told him, Father, if that sermon is a message that God really wants you to preach, wouldn't God take care of mother while you were away? Walter was surprised at his son's words. He was amazed at how God was speaking to him through his young nine-year-old son. Pastor Martin asked for forgiveness from God for his lack of faith and leaving all of his worries at the feet of God happily left to preach his Sunday night sermon. It wasn't only Walter Martin who was surprised at his son's words. Sevilla, who was in her sickbed, was also moved by her son's words. She came before God, having realized how she had not fully entrusted her illness to him and instead was caught up with worry. That is right, God. You have been taking care of me until now, and I lost my faith in you because of this sickness. I was blinded from the fact that you are with me, and I had instead been surrounded with trouble and worrying as I wasn't relying on you. I will fully believe in you and rely on you now. Thank you for fully rebuilding my faith through my son. Thank you, God. While lying in her sickbed, Sevilla realized that it was the true joy of a Christian to be living for the Lord whether through life or death. And with a heart of thankfulness to God, who had been protecting her all this time and who will continue to take care of her, she started writing a hymn poem. While Sevilla was writing this poem, Pastor Walter was preaching a sermon at the church, and during that service, dozens of people came before God. He simply laid down his troubles and worries and obeyed God, and through that obedience... God led many people to himself. Walter was filled with joy. He could not deny how everything was working according to God's perfect plan. On the way back home, Pastor Walter was elated. Sevilla on her sickbed was also shining brightly with the joy that the Lord had given her. They simply obeyed God, but this led to overcoming their troubles and worries and into God's grace. Sevilla gave her husband the words that she wrote earlier, and immediately after reading the hymn poem, Walter sat down in front of his billhorn organ and wrote the melody for the hymn. The hymn that was created from this occasion was "God will take care of you." Be not dismayed, whatever betide. God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide. God will take care of you." God will take care of you." Through every day, over all the way, He will take care of you. God will take care of you.
1: Be not dismayed, one every time. God will take.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Francis Chan of Cornerstone Church. Today's topic is Grace, 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 Grace. Part 1, based on Galatians chapter 2 verses 11 through 21. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Francis.
2: I don't want us to stop talking about grace. We have to talk about grace. Nothing else, nothing makes sense unless we talk about grace. This whole thing is a waste of time unless grace is real. Grace is this idea of God just handing us, just giving us something that we don't earn, we didn't deserve. It's God's love, God's grace. He gives us this salvation. Now, the world is fine. Everyone in the world is fine with us believing in God's grace. What they are not fine with is when we say, well, you also need God's grace. That's when the problems arise. Uh, We live in a world that teaches that there are a hundred different ways to heaven and Christianity is one of those. And so what you believe, if it's good for you, if it works for you, good, that's fine. And there are some of you in this room that come here and your belief system is such that, you know what, I believe in Christianity, but I also believe in a lot of other things as well. That's the predominant thought here. A friend of mine was at a U2 concert and said, Bono just had the whole crowd chanting, Jesus, Jew, Muhammad, true. And let's just say that over and over and over again and declare that there's a bunch of different ways. It's all true. It's all real. And I understand. I show you. You got to know about me. I totally understand that kind of thinking. I absolutely do. And I could absolutely understand why you want to believe that. I want to believe that many times. My question is, is does it really make sense, though? I understand why people would just say, you know what, no one's really going to hell. We're all good. I understand that. I want that. My problem is, does it really make sense to you, though? You see, because if we just say everyone's right and there's no right or wrong, everyone's right, there is no wrong, then no one needs to fight, right? So what a, what a great thing to believe that no one's wrong and you can go your way, she can go her way. We can all go these different ways and everyone's right. My question at the end of the day, though, is does it really make sense to you? Not do you want that to be true or would you like the idea of no punishment for anyone, but just does it make sense? Does it really make sense that if one person says Jesus Christ is the son of God and someone else teaches that Jesus Christ is not the son of God, that someone else can come along and say, you're both right. Does that make sense to you? That one religion could teach that Jesus is a false prophet. Another religion teaches that Jesus is the son of God and that they are both right. Does that really make sense in your mind at the end of the day? See, I understand the heart, I understand the desire of, well, if we just say everyone's right, then there's no fighting. Okay, I understand that, but does it really make sense in your head? And can you really go to bed at night saying, yeah, this really makes sense, this relativism, that whatever you believe about God is true. See, Paul says, I'm not going to stop talking about grace. I'm not going to talk about the grace of Jesus Christ. And there's a very important verse I want to look at today. It's Galatians 2. Verse 21, it says this. Paul says, "I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing." Paul saying the same thing that I just said. Basically, he's saying, "Look, if you could, if you could gain righteousness." A right standing, if you could be pronounced not guilty before God by any other means, whether it's by the law, whether it's this religion, that religion, if there's a bunch of ways to get there, then why did Christ die? Does that really make sense? If there were a bunch, think about this, let's just say, let's say that everyone's right, and there's there's a thousand ways to heaven, okay? Let's Let's just believe that's true for a second. Then why did God in heaven say, I'm going to have my only begotten son go down on that earth and I'm going to watch him be tortured? Okay, fathers, does that really make sense to you? That there's a bunch of ways already to heaven, but you know what? My one and only son that I love more than anyone, I'm going to have him tortured on top of it all. So now there's a thousand and one ways to heaven. See, Paul says, once I try to mesh, you know, this other teaching along with the cross, then it doesn't make any sense at all. Once I lay aside grace and say, well, you don't really need grace because you've done all these good works. He goes, then Christ's cross, it means nothing. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense that God would look at his son who in the garden is saying, come on, father, is there any other way? If any other way, then take this cup from me. And, and for the father, to go, well, there's actually a thousand different ways, but I'm going to make you go through this anyways. It doesn't make any sense. I I sometimes go through the horror of just trying to picture what went through the mind of God as He watched His one and only Son suffer on the cross and think, what in the world would I feel if I saw one of my kids go through that type of agony? Just one of them. That type of pain, I would just go nuts. And to believe that God did that to add another way? See, Paul says, once you say grace plus this, then it doesn't make any sense. And then Christ really died for no reason. There's no point to the death of Christ if there are other ways to heaven. Does it really make sense to you? You see, I, there's this pressure though. There's a tremendous pressure to conform. Because I don't like conflict. you like conflict? But Paul's saying, look, I can't just let it go. I can't just lay aside, set aside the grace of Christ. Because if I do that and lump in all this other stuff. And yet there was pressure back then. Just like there's pressure for you when you go to work tomorrow. To just kind of say, yeah, I accept everything and all these beliefs. Because it's the predominant thought. L- listen. Peter. Remember Peter in the Bible? The rock. The leader of the apostles. Peter. He caved into the pressure. Do you realize that? He caved into the pressure. He was one way around the, the Gentile believers, and then these other people came along and said, no, you got to obey the law also, you know, and what are you doing with those Gentile believers? And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me separate myself from them. We're the ones that obey the law. And so Paul has to call him out on it. Did you know that in the Bible? Paul just gets in the face of Peter. Because of his hypocrisy. Because Peter caved in. He didn't want to lose these friendships here. He didn't want to lose the status with these people. And yet, you know, he didn't want to lose it with them either. He kind of wanted to make everyone happy. And so in Galatians 2 verse 11, it says, Paul says, When Peter came to Antioch, listen to this. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he was clearly in the wrong Wow, a lot of you don't like that verse, do you? What? He was in the wrong? There's no right or wrong. And why, why is Paul judging Peter? What right does he have to judge someone else? And yet Paul says, no, Peter was wrong and I got in his face in front of everyone. Because he was clearly wrong. Why was he wrong? Because in verse 12 it says, Before certain men came... From James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Okay, so Paul just says in front of everyone, Peter, what are you doing? You used to hang out with these guys over here and say, yeah, we can eat anything. You're the one that preached that you saw this vision from God about how there's no such thing as Jews and Gentiles. And there's the unclean and the clean He goes, you're the one that was preaching that. You're the one that preached in Acts 15 about how there's no difference now. And you were eating with us. Suddenly this group comes and then you start conforming to their ways. And now you're saying, hey, you guys, uh, the grace isn't enough. You also have to obey all of these rules. And Paul's going, you're, you're a hypocrite, Peter. And other people are joining you in your hypocrisy. You know what the word hypocrite means? It means actor. That's where the word comes from. You remember in the old days when they would put a mask on, you know, when they would change characters, they'd put a mask in front of their face. It's kind of weird now we look at it. But uh, the people that put the masks on, they were called actors, but their technical name were hypocrites. These are hypocrites. That's what you do. You put a mask on. And, and that's what Paul was saying to Peter. He goes, man, these guys come. You put on your little, you know, hey, I do good works mask. And then when they're gone, you hang out with the Gentiles, and it's like, oh, the grace of God mask, and you go, well, what's going on here? And Paul confronts Peter on his hypocrisy, and there, there's, there, there was part of a, almost a sick side of me that, that likes to read that stuff and go, see, look, even Peter screws up, right? You know, isn't there that side that goes, okay, okay, you know, because the truth is, is I need the grace of God every week. I need the grace of God every day, and so does everyone else. There are no perfect people in this room. It's like some of you guys like it when I screw up. And you go, okay, okay, I feel better about myself. It's just that whole idea. In the the same way, I mean, that's the thing about grace, is we need the grace of God. Peter needed the grace of God. Paul needed the grace of God. And Paul had to confront Peter on his sin and praise God for Paul. In the same way, people are going to need to confront you on your sin. People need to confront me on my sin. We're, We're sinners, That's why we need this grace. That's why we need this forgiveness. But um, this whole hypocrisy thing isn't unique to Peter. Because the truth is, is obviously in a room this size, there are plenty of hypocrites in this room. And you've got your church mask on right now. Some of you. And some of you, you, you you were someone different Friday night than you are right now. You know, right now, you'll sing about the grace of God, but Friday night, is that what you were singing about? Is that what you were talking about? Is that what you were thinking about, the grace of God? Or had you set it aside? Tomorrow, when you go to work, are you still a person that is just talking about the grace of God, or do you kind of change your face there and and kind of blend in with the beliefs of everyone there? Some of you, it doesn't take long for you to put on your mask. The moment you get in your car with your family and everyone else is gone, and there's another you. And 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 the thing is, it's not like you want to be a hypocrite. I mean, did you grow up going, I'm going to be a hypocrite someday? Did you think, you know what, I just want to be different with every crowd I'm with? Or in your heart, don't you want to be a person that goes, no, this is who I am all of the time? Who you see on Sunday morning is who you'll see Friday night and who you see Monday at work and who you'll see in the home. It's that same person that's always about the grace of God. I speak up for my beliefs, whether I'm at church or whether I'm at work. I live out what I believe, whether I'm at church or, or whether it's whether it's Friday night. Isn't that who you want to be? And that's who Paul was. And and yet Peter here has a relapse. Peter kind of was messing up for a little while, and Paul got in his face and set him straight. Praise God for that. But as much as we try to fight hypocrisy in the church, it's going to creep up, and uh, and even in the best of people, will go through phases at times. The important is thing is the grace of God, and now let's let's pull out of it. Let's be the people who we need to be, and let's uh, not set aside the grace of Christ. Now in verse fifteen. Because Peter is, you know, telling these Gentiles now, well, you need the grace of Jesus Christ, but you also have to follow these customs. And, And Paul says you're forcing them to follow these customs that you don't even follow. And then Paul says in verse 15, he goes, listen, we, you and I, Peter, who are Jews by birth and not these Gentile sinners, this is very important. We know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Okay, first of all, what does it mean to be justified? Make sure you understand this term, justified. When a judge pronounced his uh, pronouncement at the end of a, a case, he would either pronounce the person guilty or justified is the other word. Or innocent, not guilty. That's what it means when you read that word justified in the Bible. It's the idea of the judge pronouncing you not guilty. And what, what Paul says here, he goes, look, even we who are Jews by birth, we know. We know that you don't become declared not guilty by observing the law. Okay, very important verse. Did you know that? Did you Did you know that the Old Testament does not teach? That obeying the law makes you right before God. Did you know that? See, I didn't know that growing up. I used to think... That the Old Testament taught that God gave us all these commands, all these rules, and so a good person would obey these rules, and then you get to go to heaven, and that's the way it was in the Old Testament. And then came the New Testament, and the New Testament was all about grace, about Jesus dying for your sins, dying for your crimes, so now all we have to do is believe in him and accept the grace of God. And so I thought the Old Testament was about the law and obeying the law for salvation, and then God God changed. And now the New Testament is about faith and grace and this belief in Jesus Christ. Because no one really explained the Old Testament to me. But that's not the way it was. That's, that's what the Pharisees had turned it into. They turned it into this idea of works type salvation, but that's nev- that was never the teaching of the Bible. And that's why Paul says, look, he goes, look, Peter, you and I who are, who are true Jews, we know that we're not going to be justified by observing the law. Because it's always been about grace. From cover to cover, do you realize this has always been about grace? This idea of the blood of Jesus Christ that we sang about washing away our sins was not a new idea that came with Jesus Christ. This idea of a blood sacrifice, this idea of God's grace and having someone else pay the penalty for our sin rather than us trying to work our way to it. That's what it's always been. Think back with me. Adam and Eve, right? First two people. What was the first command ever given to mankind? To Adam and Eve. Does anyone remember? Yeah, don't eat the fruit of this tree. That was the first command. Remember that? He creates the garden and says, okay, everything's good, eat whatever you want, just don't eat of this tree. And what do they do? They break it. So there was a law. The law was broken. And, you know, and, and what happens the moment they ate of the tree? What, what did they discover? Their nakedness, their shame. And so they got a bunch of fig leaves and covered themselves up, the Bible says. And then God confronts them on their sin. But then what happens? Does anyone remember what happens after that? God, yeah, God provides a skin covering. God covers up their nakedness with these animal skins. Question: Where do you get the animal skins? Did a deer come hopping by and go, "Here, you can have this," (laughs) you know, and then hopped away, skinless? No. There was a sacrifice that was made. See, we can we can skim over this stuff, you know, and you read it and you go, "Okay, so God provided skins. Well, where did he get the skins from?" And so then the skins of these animals, this blood sacrifice, and suddenly now they are covered. They're covered. And then Adam and Eve have two boys to start with. What were their names? Cain and Abel. Remember what Cain did? Cain worked the ground. He worked the soil and, and produced a crop. And then when it came time for giving an offering to the Lord, he brings all of his produce, all of the work of his hands, and lays it before the Lord. Abel, meanwhile, kills an animal and brings a portion of the animal before the Lord. And what sacrifice does the Lord accept? The blood. And he rejects Cain's sacrifice. Wait, but he worked so hard for it. I mean, it, his took more work. He had to water it. He had to let it grow. He was cultivating, working, working, working. This guy just shot an animal and brought it. But it's about the blood. It's only sacrifice for the sins. Then comes Moses. What about Moses? Remember Moses in the Exodus? Remember when he was getting the Jewish people out of Egypt? And there were all those plagues on on the Egyptians? And then there was going to be this final plague, this final plague where the firstborn, the firstborn male was going to die in every house. That God was going to come by at night and he was going to slay the firstborn of every house. But he says to the Jewish people, okay, if you don't want your firstborn killed... Then you better be good? Cause I'll see you when you're naughty. And I'll see you when you're nice. You know, is that, is that what he said? He, did he say, I'm gonna look and I'm gonna find who the good people are and I'm gonna save those households? No. He says, go and take a lamb. Go take a lamb and slaughter it and put the blood over the doorpost. Put the blood over the door frames and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over all the homes and the homes where there's blood over it. I'm going to pass over. That's where we get the term Passover. And he passed over those homes. Why? Did they do something? Did they earn that type of salvation? No, it was this blood. This blood that was over it again. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the Exodus. And then you look at the Levitical laws on the Day of Atonement, on the day when we had to atone for our sin. Do you, do you realize Leviticus 16? And if this were Old Testament times and I were the priest, then what I would have to do on the Day of Atonement, you know, to make up for my sin is, is not do a bunch of stuff. I'd have to bring in my bull. A bull. Imagine me walking in with a bull someday. Okay, that's better than the fog machine. I walk in with a bull. You know? And I bring in the bull and, and I would have to slaughter a bull. And I would have to take its blood. And I would have to sprinkle that blood upon the altar so that it's this idea of cleansing for me. Someone needs to take the penalty for my sin. It's this, this bull. That's just for me. Then I make restitution for your sin to atone for your sin. So then I gotta grab a goat and slaughter that goat on behalf of you. And then on the day of Passover, all of you, all of your families, you would each have to bring a lamb to me. You'd each have to bring a lamb into the temple. You, a one-year-old perfect lamb, you would have to bring. And then you, you, you would lay your hands on this thing, you know, and, and lean upon this, this, this lamb. And then I would come by and slit its throat. Because this idea of you placing all of your sins on this animal... And then him paying for your crimes. And it was so stinking disgusting. It was so bad. I mean, could you imagine thousands of thousands of people coming to one location with a lamb, slaughtering it, the blood spilling. They talked about how that mountain would just be drenched with blood and it would go all the way down into the river, into that brook, the Kidron. And, and they said it would just run red for like a week. Because of all the blood from that one. It was this whole picture of your sin is so disgusting to God. And a price needs to be paid for it. This wasn't new with Jesus. This was from the beginning. It was Adam and Eve. It was Cain and Abel. It was the Exodus. It was the Levitical law. And then you get to the prophets. Then you get into that prophetic era and you've got, to, you've got to Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 53, this is still Old Testament, you guys. This is still about God providing a sacrifice. Because you could never obey the law right. You guys were always sinners. Humankind, mankind, you always sinned. I always had to provide some sort of sacrifice. And then Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, it talks about, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was put upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. So now you've got the prophets who are telling the future and Isaiah saying, you know what? All of the sins are going to be placed upon him. He's going to be like a lamb that's led to the slaughter. You know how from the very beginning, how there was always a sacrifice, always a sacrifice, always a sacrifice for our sins. Well, you know what? There's going to come a time when he's going to come. And all, all of our iniquities are going to be placed upon him.
3: rescue and I
0: to unity in Christ. The English Hour in our broadcast program. Here at Heart & Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you, so if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, Please feel free to email us at askhsgm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul Podcast on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org. Following is a program titled The Lord is my shepherd where we learn about our Lord, who is our shepherd, through Psalm chapter 23.
4: Hello, and welcome. This is Jim Hughes with The Lord is My Shepherd. Today, we will look at the front part of Psalm 23, verse 5, together. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. How is it that God, the shepherd, gives a dining table in the presence of the enemy? In the last two weeks, we have talked about how the shepherds of Israel would bring their sheep to the highlands to enjoy fresh pastures during the summer and fall seasons. The shepherd would pre-survey the plateau prior to bringing the sheep up when the snow began to melt in the early spring, looking carefully for the place they would soon be staying for a few months. One purpose of his observations is to identify and remove any poisonous weeds. The shepherd must be diligent to eliminate these because in many cases the sheep cannot distinguish poisonous weeds. They eat them and soon begin to slowly die. The symptoms include a hardening of the sheep's body. This poisoning danger is in addition to the various risks of walking through the valley of the shadow of death to reach the highland pasture, as I explained in our last time together. Falling rocks, overflowing rivers, avalanches, beasts suddenly coming out to attack, and these poisonous weeds. Imagine the shepherd trying to feed the sheep through these challenges. This is the image of the shepherd setting a table or preparing a feast while in the presence of the enemy. David, the shepherd, could liken the Lord to a shepherd preparing a table because he knew well about the care of a shepherd for his sheep. Is the shepherd to just feed the sheep without any concern for the real risks? Some terrible beast suddenly coming to attack the sheep while they're eating their food? The unexpected overflowing of rivers or avalanches and the poisonous weeds unrecognized? Or is the shepherd careful to keep his flock from harm in spite of the encountered risks? If a shepherd makes up the dining table for his sheep, Without regard for the risks, he is incompetent and irresponsible. But a truly competent shepherd, a good shepherd, can serve a dining table to his sheep while providing for their safety because he has already discerned the challenges of weather, surveyed the surrounding environment, and has a strategy to protect his sheep from attacks by wild animals. God, who is the Good Shepherd, is the God upon whom David made his confession. He is also God, the Good Shepherd for you and for me. He who began a good work in us will accomplish that work until the day of Jesus Christ. When God guides us to the place that He has prepared for us, He has a purpose for us, and we can have confidence in His plan. Our confidence is not in an incompetent or irresponsible shepherd, but in Him whose wisdom and power has ordered the whole of creation. When He leads us to a place where He wants, we should not be worried or be scared or be concerned with whatever we may encounter. Because He, our Lord, already knows fully our situation and we know with confidence that he is fully able to protect us in any situation first peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says be of sober spirit be on the alert your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour When we, on the alert, sober in spirit, encounter and recognize the attack of our adversary, it is then we can see the Lord God, our Good Shepherd, leads us and has made provision for us. Like the sheep, when we are anxious or afraid, we cannot comfortably eat even though a dining table is set before us. But we can eat comfortably enjoying the dining table set for us even in dangerous situations only when we rest fully confident in our shepherd today will you with gratitude come to a dining table set in front of you and enjoy a celebration feast in the sight of a watching enemy by fully trusting in him the shepherd the good shepherd Who saves us from the hand of the enemy his hand holds you he also leads us where we go do not be afraid do not be discouraged you are his saved children his precious sheep he will never let you perish jesus said in matthew chapter 18 verses 12 through 14 what do you think If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish." Let's pray that God will engrave these words deeply on each of our hearts, that we can endure all suffering and hardships as may come without fear, looking to our Good Shepherd. Thanks for listening. Please join me again next time for more of The Lord is My Shepherd.
0: sovereignty over all things, we often do not fully entrust ourselves to His sovereignty. When we know that He will lead us if we entrust everything to Him, we still struggle to solve our troubles and worries by our own strength. If we do not respond to God's call because of our personal circumstances, we could block the work of God that He wants to accomplish through us. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 through 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It took time for Walter and Sevilla Martin to fully entrust their troubles and worries to God. But in the end, God grew their faith to a point where they could fully entrust all of themselves to Him. God's plan for us is to experience Him, to have complete faith in Him, and to do all things in faith. Are we still living this day trying to carry our own troubles and worries, leading a burdensome life? I hope that all of our listeners will surrender their troubles and worries to God. We cannot add a single hour to our lives by worrying. 1 Peter chapter 5-7 verse seven, tells us, Casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Not being able to cast our anxieties on God is evidence that we cannot fully trust Him. If you believe in God, then I hope you will entrust all of your being to our wonderfully sovereign God. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, as it has been my pleasure. I hope to meet you again next week, and God bless.
5: As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have need. Great is Thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses. See and love. Great is thy faithfulness. 10,000 beside, great is thy faithfulness, great